Over the last two decades, I've been on a quest to learn everything I can about leadership, obsessed with what makes the best leaders so good. After running companies small and large for the last 20 years, today I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo, and I'm your host. I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this topic. What makes the best leaders so good? Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things life-related, leadership-related. And today we have a great guest with us on who I've just recently got a chance to know uh, over the last uh, few days, actually, introduced to me through a good friend of mine. We have with us Vikram Mantramani. Uh Vikram is uh, a PhD and two masters from MIT, uh, his bachelor's from Yale. Uh, he is a lecturer at Harvard University and has a book coming out next week called Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. So Vikram, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. I'm thrilled to be with you. Absolutely. My pleasure. So Vikram, I, we have great time in here with this, uh, your book coming out in a week. And I know there's been a lot of uh, uh, talk about it and a lot of excitement about it coming up. Give us a little bit of a high level of what this book is about. Sure. Well, John, the book is really about how to manage experts and how to think for yourself in this era when we're drowning in information and data, right? So most of us drown in all this information and data and we don't know what to do. So we turn to experts to filter some of that information for us. But sometimes in doing so, we're giving up our own autonomy. We stop thinking. We outsource our thinking to these experts and technologies. And the book is really a call to restore your sense of autonomy, to retake control. Mm -hmm. And so I think the best phrase I have that captures the essence of my argument is we have to learn to keep experts on tap, not on top. Mm -hmm. And so this is not a book that's expert bashing by any means. I'm not suggesting that experts are useless or don't have value to add. In fact, the contrary, they're very valuable and very useful. Mm -hmm. The key, however, is to understand the boundaries of their insights, where they apply and where they don't. And so for certain experts, we want to turn to for certain information. Um, and as a result, we need to stay in control and own the context in which these decisions may get taken. So, uh, so, so why really do you think so? So you, you feel there's been a trend where people have relied more and more on outside experts and we've started to think less for ourselves. Why do you think that has happened? Sure. So I think part of it is literally just the volume of information that's being thrown at us, the data that's exploding, and this nagging fear, FOMO, right? It's sort of the modern day ailment du jour, right? Which is this fear of missing out. We believe there is an optimal solution for every decision. We also understand the constraints of our own decision processes. And as a result, what we really find is we turn to experts to help us optimize, to find the absolute perfect decision. Mm -hmm. And so it's this FOMO combined with data overload, et cetera, that leads us running into the arms of experts. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also because we've all learned to specialize and to be narrow and deep. This has been highly prized by our society. Mm -hmm. uh, you earn more the more specialized you are, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not surprising then that when we need 
insights that can help us maximize, we turn to someone more specialized than us on that particular topic. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, does that, does that happen at certain times more than others? So for example, now we're in, and for those watching this at a later time, we're in the midst of quarantine and, and COVID, uh, pandemic, times of crisis, stress, high emotions? Is that when people tend to seek outside expertise more so? Well, it's actually a combination of things. It's very interesting. It's a great question, John. So uh, let me talk first about the pandemic, because I think this is unique as a situation in terms of being locked down and perhaps even overly consuming media in a certain format, right? So the technology side of the equation, the artificial intelligence, the algorithms, um, have a disproportionate influence on our lives. So a great story that I'll share with you here or an example is what happens with social media. I mean, how many people actually proactively post something negative that happens to them? Hey, John, guess what? I got fired from my job today. Let me tweet that. I see oh, it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It blows my mind. Let me, post, I see it all let the me time. post. Oh, man, I blew the deal today. I pitched it. I lost right. it. Yeah. No, you know, people are biased to presenting a positive image online, right? And so the online world tends to present a more positive image. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, real life is not that way. We all have ups and downs. Um, and so if you are locked in your house and you're consuming media of everybody else having great times, everything's wonderful for all of them, you start feeling like you're being left behind even more. The FOMO gets more intense. The anxiety, the depression sort of is exacerbated. Any tendency that was there to begin with gets intensified. And so I think part of it has to do with how we see the filters and our sort of mindless adoption of these filters and presumption that this is reflective of reality, mm -hmm. right? So the social media world is biased. It's positively biased. We know that. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow we forget that when we're locked in our house and we look through these little portals um, onto the world. So that's one thing is that I do think we get an exacerbated anxiety, which may lead us more towards experts, as you've indicated, mm -hmm. uh, in moments of stress, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens is we're always feeling the need to optimize, as I was saying earlier, and it's we, we've lost the ability to what you know a Nobel Prize winning economist Herb Simon said was satisfice, right? Just good enough. Hey, it's good enough. What's wrong with that? No, I want the best. I'm going to find the doctor who was the Boston Red Sox pitching arm doctor. I guess my arm, I, I got a little tweak in my elbow. I want to go to the best hospital that the doctors treated the most important people to help me. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's probably like, fine with any doctor, honestly, in a situation like that. Right. Right. And it, it seems like a lot of, you know, a lot of times we get so much advice from other people and they're people that just want you know, advice from 10 different sources, but it becomes paralysis by analysis and they don't do anything with the sure. advice. So when you changed, because I know I read that you, you go through an exercise, you've fired your experts in your life and then thought about, okay, well, if I'm going to rehire them at all, what do I actually need them for? What, sure. is, what did that do for you when you went through that transformation? Yeah. So I think, you know, I don't know that anyone needs to necessarily do what I did, which was the, the story I used in the book is that I actually did uh, fire a bunch of folks that I had relied on. And then I sort of thought about it. What is it that I need? 
And in some cases, I went back to this very same individual I was working with before, but I did it mindfully. I understood what I was seeking, not just as a default operating assumption that, okay, this is the nature of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Great example is with my, uh, my own personal medical doctor. Um, I was seeing a doctor in Boston who was fabulous, had all the right credentials, one of the best, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, at one point, after I had written my first book about financial bubbles, um, and the main point of that book was multiple lenses help you see something that any one lens specialist might not see. So if you're looking only at prices and you're not paying attention to psychology, you might miss a financial bubble. If you're only looking at politics, but you don't pay attention to economics or credit conditions, then you might miss a financial bubble, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, it was also a message of being a generalist versus a specialist. Right. Anyway, I, I had a little medical scare and this doctor, uh, said, well, you know, we can't figure it out, but we'll send you to a specialist. And I stopped and I was like, wait, what? Hold on a second. If you're sending me to a specialist, I hope you know the problem. Because if you don't know what the problem is, sending me to a specialist is like sending me to a man with a hammer. He will find a nail, right? And so I really felt very strongly that that was the wrong logic. And so I walked out on that doctor and I sort of determined to get, sort of took a step back and said, what do I want for my doctor? I want a partner in health, someone who doesn't tell me what to do, but someone who works with me to figure out what we should do. Mm-hmm. I wanted a more of a partnership oriented field. And I went and I found one mm-hmm. that sort of took that approach. It's a lot easier to begin a relationship with an advisor or an expert that you're going to rely on knowing that saying that and being open about it at the get-go. So I'm, I'm trying to apply this to, if I'm listening to this and I don't think your message is, Hey, don't have professionals or don't seek advice from people that are experts, but it's to not, it's to have a happy balance and make sure that you're not detaching your brain and your own uh, intellect in making decisions. Um, which some people do. Um, but what does that look like for somebody? I mean, you know, if I, if I'm going seeking out advice, how do I know where that line is between, uh, just blindly following someone and making sure that I'm using my own. Yeah. So, so part of that, John is look, I think it's as problematic to blindly follow an expert as it is to completely dismiss an expert. Right. So I think both of those are equally problematic approaches to managing experts. Mm-hmm. The key is, as you've said, there's a nuance, right, which is you need to sort of tap into them, hear them out. But you should also feel really empowered to ask as many questions as you want. Right. Don't be sort of bullied by the intellectual credentials on the wall or the white coat or what have you. Right. I mean, you should feel empowered. It's your life. It's you're you're the principal. You're the lead actor. They're supporting actors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and it's also structural. And this should give some people confidence here. Right. It's structural in the sense that experts tend to live within a silo. They don't have a full appreciation for the context in which the decision is being made. And so, you know, you can think of yourself as an artist putting together a mosaic. Well, each tile comes from an expert and you might need multiple experts to get you where you're going. Mm -hmm. Right. So another piece of advice I give is that it's really important to triangulate that, you know, and the reason I say it that way is I really believe that every single perspective is not only biased, but it's also incomplete. 
And therefore, the way to minimize that bias or to offset some of the bias and to develop a more complete perspective is to adopt multiple perspectives and to triangulate. Mm -hmm. One guy will see it this way. You'll see it another way. A third person will see it a third way, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And slowly, Mm -hmm. you'll start getting your arms around the problem. And you talk about some interesting examples that that people can relate to. You know, we saw a flight, uh, I think it was 159 with Captain Sully. And you talk about that as an example where here he is trained uh, extensively in all this technology around him. But he's got split seconds to make a decision that ultimately saved hundreds of lives but in, in, in the movie, even to capsulate that's in the book as well, that, hey, there were multiple other decisions that may have looked like it made sense based yep. on what he was reading, right? And ultimately, that, but that, that's a great example, right? Yeah, well, so the outsourcing of thinking is, that's a great example of how outsourced thinking, it can really lead you astray and how insourcing your thinking at times is really important, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, for instance, Believe it or not, most cockpits have a checklist for what to do if both engines fail, okay? It's a couple pages long, and it's intended for you as a pilot to look at when you're 30,000 feet and have 25 minutes before the plane glides down to the earth. It's not intended to be looked at when you're 3,000 feet with six minutes or whatever. the I forget what the exact time of four minutes, right? So... The first thing the pilots did, Jeff Skiles actually pulled out the checklist because that's what pilots are trained to do in a moment of crisis. Mm -hmm. And they both, he and Scully immediately decided, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So Sully immediately said, there's not a checklist for everything. Let's put that away. Let's not waste time on it. He's interacting with the air traffic controller and Sully did not let them take over. Mm-hmm. as many a person would in this moment of anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. So he tapped into the air traffic and said, okay, Teterboro onto my right, LaGuardia back this way. And he sort of said, okay, thank you. All right. Mm-hmm. Then he decided that person was no longer useful. Yeah. It's in interesting. And that's such a great example. I mean, he was the only person and the best person in that situation to make the right decision. And, and I think a lot of times people, and, and I've seen this a lot, whether it's somebody making a decision about their career or a business decision, they're leading a company, or it's a life decision, a relationship, and they forget the fact that they are the ones that are best positioned to make that decision. They're the ones that have all the information. They're the ones that ultimately are going to have to maybe live with this decision. They're in their role for a reason, but they forget that because there's almost like this this unwillingness to take responsibility. Another example you gave was uh, General Lori Robinson, uh, the only uh, female four-star general, I believe, that uh, was is tasked with having to make a decision uh, yeah. is, is, tell us about that. I, you're going to tell about yeah, it. So General Robinson's amazing. Probably one of the most impressive women I've ever met in my life. Uh, and she's not the only four-star Air Force general. There's, there's been plenty of those. She was the, the first female combatant commander in U.S. military history. Mm. Meaning she was the first female to rise as a four-star Air Force general. She was commander of NORAD. Uh, but she was also commander of Northern Command, which means she controlled U.S. forces and could deploy them for her purposes. She was the mission commander. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result of uh, being in some really high-stress situations, I mean, you can imagine, I went and I met with her when she was commander of NORAD for the first time. Um, and so I'm there in Colorado Springs, 
uh, in our office. And, you know, every other day there was a missile being launched from North Korea. Like it felt like that. And so she has minutes once that sort of alert comes to her to decide what to do. Do you alert the president? Do you alert the vice? Do you alert the prime minister of Canada, et cetera? Uh, really just an impressive woman who could take that, but all that information, handle that stress and make decisions as needed when needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things she says is you have to learn to rely on experts and those who know more than you do, take their inputs and then you call the ball, so to say, right? It's your call, but it's really critical to listen and to create an environment in which people feel free to give you their best thinking. Mm -hmm. And the analogy is, so for all of us as individuals, when interacting with experts or advisors, we should never sort of belittle them. We should actually empower them to give us their best thinking. Mm -hmm. But as you've said, John, own the decision. It's ours to make. Yeah. So we want the best advice, we'll own it. Yeah, a few different questions for you. So you may you, you you mentioned you know creating an environment where people feel comfortable giving advice, and we've got a lot of leaders that are listening to this that run companies or coming up in an organization, and I see that as a major problem with leaders. And I know I've I've dealt with it running different companies where you have people in that organization that are brilliant that might have great ideas or solutions to a problem or new directions or whatnot or feedback, and they don't feel comfortable bringing that up, whether it's fear of getting ridiculed or they just don't think they're just going to get accepted. So as a leader, how do you create that kind of environment that people do feel comfortable giving you advice? Yeah. So it's not only advice, it's also contradictions, right? I mean, it's sort of, you don't want people to feel like they can't bring bad news to a leader. And so if you want them to be really honest with you, you need to make them feel psychologically safe, mm-hmm. that they can do that, that there's not career risk in, in, in bringing a contradictory message to the ones they think you are expecting, so to say. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example from, from a long time ago, John. This was when I was working on my dissertation. I got to know Gary Loveman, who was at the time the CEO of Harris Entertainment, the predecessor to what is today Caesars Entertainment, which is now being rolled up again further. Um, but at the time, Gary shared a story of how Caesars Entertainment, which was one of the world's largest gaming companies back then, um, was, I believe, I might be getting it exactly opposite, but it was either a Coke operation or a Pepsi operation. Uh, I think maybe it was a Pepsi operation, but he personally loved Diet Coke. And so he would bring into his office a six-pack of Diet Coke. Again, it might be the opposite. I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was Diet Pepsi he liked and Diet Mm -hmm. Coke was 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 the business enterprise. But then there was this one point which he felt was transformational. He was going to a board meeting. I think it was in Atlantic City. And again, it's a total Pepsi operation. The whole enterprise is. And here in the middle of the board meeting, someone shows up with a silver platter and on it, Diet Coke can. And they bring it to Gary right at the beginning of at the head of the table. And he says he got, he lost it. He was like, oh my God. I'm living in a bubble of misinformation. If people feel like they have to give me what they think I want, Mm -hmm. this is a problem. This is a problem. You will never get true, unadulterated, honest, actual feedback if -hmm. people are feeling like they have to give you something that you are expecting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, and leaders, I find leaders like, there's a lot of leaders that just want to surround themselves with people that reinforce their own opinion. They don't want to, they don't want contradictory uh, opinions. And then there are also some that don't that are uh, that are not opening the the channels of communication with all of their 
uh, members of that organization. I just remember Jack Welch told a story in one of his books about one of the great ideas, and I don't remember what the idea was, but an incredibly uh, powerful idea that uh, that that GE uh, went went in a direction of, and it came from a factory worker, and the factory worker actually said, you know, for years you've had my hands. This is the first time you've really tapped into my brain. And it was a brilliant creative solution to a problem or whatever it was. It was worth, you know, multiples of millions of dollars. So I think the best leaders realize and are realizing that more and more that uh, they need to, they've got all this power around them if they open themselves up to that. The mistake is when we don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, John, the other thing I'd, I'd emphasize is disagreement is actually and should be seen as really empowering to a leader, right? I mean, having a, a team that's in full agreement might feel safer and sort of there's a consensus that's been built up for a decision, a strategic decision. But I would suggest that actually disagreement shows a deeper understanding of the problem mm-hmm. and allows the leader to really make decisions that could be even higher impact because of them. Right. You know, there's that famous uh, Alfred Sloan quote. Um, I don't know if you remember it, but it was something along the lines. God, I'm forgetting it exactly. But Alfred Sloan walks into a board meeting at GM and, you know, there's a big strategic decision on the table and all of his um, all of his uh, peers around the board room that are involved with the decision are all nodding along saying yes. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of gentlemen, if we're all in agreement that I propose we adjourn to give ourselves some time to to develop disagreement Mm -hmm. so that we can really understand what this decision is all about. Captures the essence of it, I think, better than most. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's dangerous. So many firms built around people that think the same and are afraid to, uh, you know, uh, conflict in opinions. You would um, you made me think of another thing when people trust their gut, you know, in making decisions. There's some people that's how they make decisions. How, how do you feel about that? How important, how accurate is that? What place does your gut play in making major decisions? It's so hard to say. I mean, intuition is an important variable here, John, but it's not the be all end all. It varies person to person. I mean, it depends on their own risk tolerance, how much ownership they want of the decision versus how much they want to share. What kind of inputs have they acquired subconsciously, unconsciously that may be going into that gut logic, but is really an informed decision? Ah, it's a hard question to answer. I'm sorry. It's just, it's the kind of thing which, you know, people say, well, what role does luck play? Well, sometimes the hardest working people are the luckiest. Is that luck? Uh, they put themselves in the right place, the right time. And then luck happens like, all right, yeah. these people that are really informed and have great diversity of inputs, and then they trust their instinct. Is that really instinct? Like, yeah. so it's a complicated question and one that I don't know that I have an answer to, unfortunately. That's okay. So you, you, I know we have only a few minutes left here, but what, what is, what's on your mind nowadays more than anything? What's, what's the thing that keeps you up at night? What do you, what do you want to uh, make sure that people take action on? Yeah, look, I think this the political environment that we currently face feels really polarized. It really does. And so, and I think that comes from this logic of not thinking for yourself. 
And so one of the things that I've been out there really pounding the table on, and it comes out of this logic of leadership and thinking for yourself in a leadership capacity, but also in an individual capacity, I really want people to go seek that disagreement, understand the views of those that are very different than your own, that have views different than your own. So if you're a devout Fox News follower, I want you to pay some attention to what's being said on CNN or MSNBC or one of the others. And likewise, if you're a devout CNN, MSNBC follower, I really want you to listen to understand the perspective of those who pay attention to Fox. I really wish these all these networks would share all cross-pollinate the views rather than develop views of their own. But I think in this highly polarized time, it's critical we think for ourselves and take these filtering systems as inputs, not as gospel that we regurgitate. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we do need to think for ourselves. And as grandiose as this sounds, John, I think our society depends on that. Mm-hmm. And if we don't think for ourselves, at risk is our autonomy, our freedom, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really do think it's critical that all of us take the time to go seek disagreement on the views we hold so that we can actually be more informed and understand the perspectives others have. Mm-hmm. So that's my one tidbit. Absolutely, I agree. And that ties in with our, our show, that's uh, Tomorrow's Leader and Leading versus Following. So mm-hmm. being open-minded and getting different perspectives. So uh, yeah. the book, uh, Think for Yourself, comes out next Tuesday, the 16th. If people want to pick up a copy, how do they do it? It should be available on Amazon. Uh, I think it is. <laughs> there are links on my website as well, John, uh, which is just www.manshuramani.com. And I have a link not only to Amazon, but of course, a link to IndieBound uh, to support local bookshops as well. If people care to go that way. Excellent. So we've been here with Vikram Manshuramani, uh, author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence, coming out next Tuesday, the 16th. Vikram, thank you for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Absolutely. Have a good one. Thanks, Thanks. everybody, for joining today. Uh, If you like today's episode, be sure to like it, share, subscribe, and leave some comments as uh, with all episodes and lead on. Thank you. Enjoy the day. Take care. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader for suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching. Reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks. Lead on.